From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What will it take to prevent the next pandemic? Consider what scientists are learning about how COVID-19 spreads. But I think it's clear. We are getting infected by breathing this virus in. People sharing the air, breathing the same air at the same time for quite a bit of time in a poorly ventilated space. And that's the gist of it. We'll explore the idea of regulating air. And what about wiping down surfaces? Disinfecting surfaces is completely useless. And it's a total waste of time, money, and effort. And I would argue that it increases transmission because we spend time, money, and effort doing that. And then we don't spend time, money, and effort doing the things that actually reduce transmission. We'll talk with a researcher who's leading the charge against the airborne transmission of viruses. Plus, how the history of medicine allowed the COVID-19 vaccines to be developed so quickly. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Our first guest studies airborne viruses. And here's one thing he says about COVID-19 that might surprise you. He argues disinfecting surfaces to prevent the spread of the virus is hygiene theater. We'll talk about that in a recent article he co-authored in the Perspectives section of Science Magazine. He says that to prevent the next pandemic, Air needs to be regulated, just like food and water. Jose Luis Jimenez is a professor of chemistry at CU Boulder. Jose Luis, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We spoke with you last year about your efforts, along with other scientists around the world, to get the word out about how COVID-19 spreads via airborne particles or aerosols. First, can you explain what these are? So if someone is infected with this virus, or another respiratory virus, the virus is present in our saliva and our respiratory fluid, and it needs to reach another person in order to infect them. So this can happen in one of three ways. It can go through a surface, you touch your nose, and then someone touches your hand, and they touch the inside of their eye, nostrils, or mouth. Or it can go through basically literally little balls of saliva and respiratory fluid that leave one person and have to reach the other. And we have two types of these balls, the big ones and the small ones. The big ones we call droplets, and they behave like projectiles. You can see them in the right light, and they leave one person and hit the other inside the eyes, inside the nostrils, inside the mouth. And this is what WHO and CDC until recently had said was the dominant mode of transmission. But at the same time that these leave a person, you also have much smaller ones and much more numerous ones that we call aerosols. And these don't behave like projectiles or fall to the ground they just behave like cigarette smoke and they stay in the air and we infect ourselves by breathing them in. So this is airborne transmission. I remember last March, there was just so much question about how COVID-19 spread. People didn't know if it aerosolized. When did you realize the air was the primary way COVID-19 spread? Well, early on, so starting in February of last year, I started to suspect that the air played a role. The research then supported that. But with time, more and more evidence has accumulated. 
Now I am convinced that the air is the only important form of transmission and all the other forms of transmission are minor. Basically, we get infected of this virus by breathing it in. In one of two situations, when we are talking to someone who's close to us, especially without a mask, or when we share the air of a room. Was there a super spreading event near the beginning of the pandemic that was a clue that airborne spread was a way of transmitting the virus? Yes, there were a number of super spreading events, but um, the one that really changed my mind was the Squire in Washington. So this was um, a super spreading event when in a choir rehearsal, one person infected 52. And there was an article in the Los Angeles Times that was published, and I I read the article and immediately sent an email to the journalist who put me in touch with the choir, and the choir agreed to answer our questions. And we sent them pages and pages of questions trying to document exactly what they did, which they replied. And once they replied, it was very clear that the only way this infection could have happened was through the air. So that's when I stopped being shy and I started telling people on Twitter and the media that infection through the air was important. So does that mean the virus doesn't spread the way we originally thought it did through contaminated surfaces? At the beginning of the pandemic, some people were wiping down groceries. I was. I was one of the people wiping down groceries. I mean, it was a virus we knew nothing about, and the authorities were telling us that it was transmitted through surfaces. So lots of people started wiping up everything. But we have since learned that this is very unlikely. And CDC actually already, May 2020, already told us that surface transmission was unlikely. And more recently, a couple of months ago, they told us it was very unlikely. It's a chance in 10,000. So really, we should keep washing our hands, not so much for this virus, but because there are other pathogens, that's a good thing to do. But uh, disinfecting surfaces is completely useless. And it's a total waste of time, money, and effort. And I would argue that it increases transmission because we spend time, money, and effort doing that. And then we don't spend time, money, and effort doing the things that actually reduce transmission. So you actually called a lot of those things hygiene theater. So explain what that means. So theater in the sense that uh, it gives a false sense of security. So we were wiping things down and people see us wiping things down in a restaurant or in public transportation, and they feel safe because basically when they told us early on that the virus went through surfaces, you know, they basically put the fear of God of surfaces. The worst of it all is when people start disinfecting the outdoors. It's just pollution and a total waste of money. But you see many countries with trucks spraying disinfectants on the street. First of all, the surfaces on the street, we don't get infected through surfaces and even less by surfaces on the street. And the sun is a great disinfectant. It kills this virus. So, you know, these things that they have in some stadiums, they are spraying disinfectant with drones. and It's it's just a total waste of time and money. So this whole idea of COVID-19 spreading through the air, that's actually contrary to what the World Health Organization or other organizations said at the very beginning of the pandemic. And they went back and forth on recommendations. Recently, the WHO changed its website to say that the virus spreads mainly through the air. Why was there so much resistance to this theory early on? Well, because the pandemic has unearthed an error that WHO, CDC, and basically the fields of epidemiology and infectious diseases were stuck in 1910. I realize this is hard to believe, but it is the truth. There was um, an epidemiologist uh, named Charles Chapin, who worked in Rhode Island in 1910, who wrote a really influential book. He said that when, when diseases transmit well, when people are close to each other in close proximity, that this is due to these droplet projectiles that leave one person and impact the other. He called it a spray-borne 
transmission. And he said that airborne transmission was unimportant. And this became a dogma. This is actually a debate, though, that it goes back way more than 100 years. People have been debating how viruses spread and resisting new theories thousands of years. Back to Hippocrates, right? Yeah, I mean, disease transmission is a difficult subject, right? If you get infected or you get sick with something, and which of the many things you've done the week before is the one you touch many surfaces, you talk to many people, you drank a lot of water, food, how did you get infected? So it has always been controversial. And through the history of humanity, some theory gets established, and then it's very difficult for another theory to dislodge it, right? So Hippocrates said that when a lot of people get sick at the same time, we have to suspect the air because that's what we all use, right? And that became a dominant theory, the theory of miasmas. I mean, really until 1910, it was still present. But then, for example, in 1847, Ignaz Semmelweis in Vienna showed that washing hands greatly reduced infection. But doctors didn't believe him, and he died without his theory being accepted. And then John Snow in 1854 showed that cholera was transmitted through water. With basically, he removed the pump handle, and people stopped dying. But yet the Board of Health in London said this was just a suggestion, and they didn't see any reason to believe that cholera went through water. And John Snow died, and his theory that diseases went through water was not accepted, right? And in 1910, really, this paradigm that diseases go through the air that comes from Hippocrates is completely turned on its head by Chapin. And then that becomes the dominant theory. And now, as we witness in this year, it has been extraordinarily difficult to overturn this paradigm because it was so ingrained, even though it has no evidence. So you mentioned a bunch of people whose theories, they weren't accepted within their lifetime. The idea that COVID-19, it spreads to the air, that was accepted in under two years. Does it feel like we've made some advances forward? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it was at least uh, myself and my colleagues haven't had to die before our theories were accepted. Yeah, I mean, science moves faster now, but at the same time, a year in a pandemic of this size and how many people have been infected because we haven't told them how infection really works, but we have not opened the windows. We have not explained how important it is to wear a good mask that fits well against your face, you know? You've pushed for mask wearing since the early days of the pandemic. Much of the United States, Colorado included, has rolled back a lot of mask orders. Dendrite asked people if they would still wear a mask anyway, and it has generated a lot of discussion. We've heard from a bunch of people who think that the decision was premature to reduce some of the mask mandates. How do you feel about it? I think that there is two parts to the decision. And scientifically, it is correct that people who are vaccinated are at low risk. And if they are willing to accept this very low risk, it's okay that they remove their mask. Now, sociologically, once you say vaccinated people can remove their mask, and you know there is a huge fraction of the population who doesn't want to wear masks and doesn't want to get vaccinated, and we don't have it stamped on our foreheads whether we are vaccinated or not, you are effectively giving permission to a large fraction of the population to remove their mask indoors. And that is very dangerous, you know, with a very contagious variants and still a very large fraction of the population that's not vaccinated. I think that's gonna set us back. I mean, I, I just hope that vaccination continues to proceed as quickly as possible, but there is no question in my mind that it was a very bad idea. Another person answered the Denverite query and they said that the fact that the flu plummeted with COVID-19 restrictions means that they'll likely keep their mask on around strangers in crowded settings. Jose Luis, do the flu, low flu numbers make you think that we should keep wearing masks indefinitely? 
Um, not everybody and not all the time. But I think the flu is probably most likely also spread by the air, by airborne transmission, and masks work, but it is less contagious and we have more immunity. So what reduced COVID really killed the flu this year, right? But in the future, I mean, I think in high-risk situations or for high-risk people during flu season, we say, you know, people who, if they get the flu are at high risk, they should wear masks. And certainly people who, who have the flu shouldn't go to work or something. And if they do, they should then, if they have to, then they should definitely wear a good mask to protect others. And I think in, in risky situations, like in my case, you know, my family lives in Europe and, and I go see them every year. And then I have to get into, so I go in a in an uber to the airport in a train to the waiting area to the plane to another airport to, you know so i'm basically sharing the air for 20 hours with people and actually half the time i go i end up with a cold either there or when i come back or, or with the flu or something so certainly i'm gonna i'm gonna be wearing my mask the whole time in situations like that in the future and you're actually thinking not just about COVID-19, you're thinking about how to prevent future pandemics. So can you explain specifically what this understanding tells us about what we can do to limit airborne spread? The pandemic has taught us that all respiratory diseases transmit through the air, or almost all. And in fact, for something to become a fast spreading pandemic like this one, it has to spread through the air. Some infected people, not everybody, but some infected people who have a high viral load, put a lot of aerosols that contain the virus in the air. And this behaves like cigarette smoke. And you want to do whatever you will have to do to not breathe that smoke. And then once you think about that, everything makes sense. So of course, being outdoors is the best thing we can do. I mean, with, with a big by a big margin, right? If, if we meet outdoors, there is more wind, there's the sun, there is not a ceiling that traps the air. So having any, you know, family, professional meetings, school, everything that can be done outdoors should be done outdoors. But outdoors means in the open air, not in a plastic tent completely closed for a restaurant. <laughs> that is worse than indoors because the ventilation is even worse than inside the restaurant. Then if you have to go indoors, then there is a, it's never going to be safe, but you can make it a lot safer. You have to increase ventilation. Ventilation means that the air that's inside, where the virus may be accumulating, has to go outside, and you get air from outside that doesn't have the virus. And there is, of course, in many places, it may be difficult to know if you have enough ventilation, but fortunately, there is a trick. And you can buy carbon dioxide meters that work with infrared technology for about $100. And these meters tell you how much exhaled air is in a space. And remember, with exhaled air that accumulates in a space comes the virus and comes infection. So what we've been recommending is to keep CO2 levels indoors below 700 parts per million. Outdoors is about 400. If you keep it below 700, that's reasonably safe. But in many places, if you don't pay attention, you are at 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, especially in the small places with low ventilation, like a shared car. 10% of the air that you breathe has already been in the lungs of someone else. And that's an extremely dangerous situation. Now, if you cannot ventilate because you, know, you just don't have a window or whatever other reason, then you have to filter. To filter, just like a mask, is a filter that we wear, and our lungs and our diaphragm move the air through that filter. You can also buy a filter that you plug in the wall and it has a, a fan that moves the air through the filter. And we have scientist colleagues in Spain who have put filters in the schools and then they do PCR on the filter and they find the virus is there. It can only be there if it was in the air and the filter removed it from the air. So it works, right? And those are well understood and they don't have any side effects. So you can buy these HEPA filters 
they can be expensive and you have to be careful because you can really get products that are four times as expensive and noisier and they work less well. For example, Anthony Fauci said he had bought a HEPA filter and then we look at which ones he had bought and it was the worst and the most expensive in existence. You know, so, so you have to, to, to ask for advice of people who know about filters. And then in some cases you can use ultraviolet light and it's more expensive if you do it well, but maybe in a prison in certain situations it can work. And then the last thing are things to avoid. I'm a professor of chemistry. I'm going to tell you to avoid anything that tries to kill the virus in the air through chemistry. Why? Because the virus is made of lipids, proteins, and nucleic acids. And if you put chemicals that react with those things, guess what we are made of? Proteins, lipids, and nucleic acid. So anything you put in the air to kill the virus at sufficient concentration is going to react with our eyes, with our respiratory system. So it's a bad idea. And in addition, indoors there are a lot of what we call volatile organic compounds, things that come from perfumes, from cleaning products, from us, from building materials, and they accumulate indoors. And then these chemicals that we put in to react with the virus, they also react with these volatile organic compounds, and they produce more toxic substances. Yeah. So how expensive are the things that you're describing? I mean, you've described a lot of filtration, different kinds of UV systems. How expensive is that for buildings and businesses to install? So it depends, you know, the size of your space and how how many people are there and things like that. I mean, opening the windows or doing things outdoors is, is free, except opening the windows comes with some energy cost. So a CO2 meter costs, as I said, about $100. So you have some that for, for $200, then you can put them on a smart TV and everyone can see what the CO2 level is. And that's what we encourage so everyone can see. And that can actually save you a lot of energy because if then if you know that you're ventilating enough, what we find is that you can ventilate enough by opening the windows a little bit and then you save a lot of energy. So it will pay for the CO2 meter. If you cannot do enough ventilation and you have to go to filters, I can mention, so I... I I donated some filters for my kids' school. So for a, a classroom with 20 kids, one of these HEPA filters cost about $400. So, so it's not cheap, but there is an alternative that is if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and you can buy a box fan and then tape, literally duct taped to it, a filter that you will put in a air conditioning system, like a, not a HEPA filter because um, those are too thick, but what's called a MERV 13 filter. And those systems work very well if they are big enough for the room. And, and they cost a fifth of what a HEPA filter costs. So, you know, you may be talking in that case for a classroom, $75 or something like that. Already, there have been a lot of people out there selling different systems to businesses and individuals to clean the air, so to speak. How does someone trust the advice they're getting if even Dr. Fauci has bought a HEPA filter that is expensive and less effective than one that you would recommend? I mean, that's something where, uh, unfortunately, the, um, the public agencies and the CDC have been very unclear. ASHRAE, for example, the American Society of Heating, Ventilation and Air Conditioning Engineers has some guidelines and, and we have put some guidelines. But, I mean, you have to be really careful. There is a lot of slick marketing about products that are essentially unproven and that we cannot find any, you know, any peer-reviewed research. You know, they claim they destroy the virus, they may or they may not, and they claim they don't produce byproducts. And I have many colleagues who are doing measurements and we see that that's wrong. I have a, a prominent colleague in this field who says, in the market for air cleaning devices, at least 50% is fraud. And I, I have to see if what I have seen so far does not too wrong. So you have to be really careful when someone is trying to sell you something 
um, that's cleaning the air, it, it may not be doing so. And in fact, you may be creating a bigger problem than you had. And one of the things you'd like to see is regulation of the air, much like food and water. What would that look like? Well, so once we realized, for example, in in the middle of the 19th century that cholera was transmitted through water, then there were all these efforts to provide clean water, right? And and to take sewage away and not mix the sewage with the drinking water and things like that 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 were being done. And that was extraordinarily successful, right? Now we we don't get, we drink tap water and we don't get infected. And the same was done with food. It was realized that diseases go through food and you can see when now there is a, an E. coli outbreak due to some lettuce, immediately there is this recall system and, and people are protected and the outbreak is limited, right? So we have costly and, and complex, but very effective systems for this. But for respiratory disease transmission, we have not made the effort. And in fact, in 1945, uh, William Wells, who was the person who later, much later demonstrated that tuberculosis transmitted through the air, which was the first disease to be accepted as transmitted through the air, he wrote in, in a predecessor journal to science, and he said exactly this, we have made great efforts for water, we have made great efforts for food, but we have not made an effort for, for ventilation for the air because disease transmission is denied. And our article in science last week, in 76 years later, we are saying the same thing almost with the same words. We have not, we have done huge efforts for water and for food, but we have not made the efforts for the air. And it's high time that we do so. Well, Jose Luis Jimenez, I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your research. Thank you for having me. Jose Luis Jimenez is a professor of chemistry at CU Boulder. He co-authored a recent piece in Science about the need for a paradigm shift for fighting airborne pathogens and the importance of improving indoor ventilation systems. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's really difficult to be like in this position. It's been a turbulent year for police. I can't do something wrong. And then people say, oh, well, you're a cop, so I guess it's okay. Officer Derek Chavin's knee on George Floyd's neck told an old story of America's legacy of race and police. Does it stay on the same path, or can policing be reimagined? Episode 1 of Systemic from Colorado Public Radio, available now everywhere you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters on listener-supported CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Medicine has come a long way from the early days of miasma and bleedings. The book The Invention of Surgery, A History of Modern Medicine, details the journey of discovery from leeches to antibiotics to open-heart surgery. This history also helps explain the increasing speed of medical advancements. It took less than a year to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. Author Dr. David Schneider is an orthopedic surgeon based in Boulder. We spoke in January. So your history, it begins with Hippocrates and Galen. They're often called the fathers of medicine. But you write that these two contributed nothing useful to the actual healing of people. Why then are they still considered the fathers of medicine? Both Hippocrates and Galen, Greek and Roman, respectively, did inspire an inclination to think more deeply about how the body works. And of course, they were limited by all the diagnostic tools. Of course, they were almost 2,000 years away from a a good working microscope. But at least they tried. And they had an emphasis on doing the right thing and being honest with your patients and, and the highest duty to care for your patients. 
But really, it is, uh, as I write in the book, it's a dubious paternity because they were wrong in so many ways. <laughs> so it's not that they had the science right so much, but they did inspire a lot of the ways that we view medicine or that doctors can practice it. That's right. There are a number of scientists who weren't physicians who you argue played a role in the history of medicine. People like Gutenberg, Newton, Francis Bacon. Tell us about their contributions. Yeah. Well, it really starts with Francis Bacon. 400 years ago, almost exactly, in 1620, Francis Bacon was really the guy, more than anyone else, that is the father of empirical science. And Bacon had this incredible inclination. He lived in and around London. He really realized, you know what, if, if we get a bunch of really smart thinkers together in a room and do an important process, empirical science, that is to say, to form a hypothesis do some investigative work, come up with some data, analyze it, and form a new hypothesis. And if we keep doing this, particularly sharing the information in what he called Solomon's house, if we come together and do that, we'll actually figure out truly how the world works. And of course, it was it was Francis Bacon who then inspired the formation, just less than 50 years later, of the Royal Society who then said, we're going to share our information and we're going to have the world's first peer-reviewed journal, which is still in function today, the Philosophical Transactions. This peer-reviewed sharing of information, the collection of scientific data, is what just forced the world to leapfrog ahead. There were several moments that propelled medicine forward, but a major one was the discovery of pathology by Giovanni Battista Morgagne. Why was this important? Morgagne doesn't get the credit he deserves. He had this incredible research project throughout the 1700s to realize, you know, doctors, there was never a good, no matter how smart a doctor was in the 1700s, they weren't doing anyone any good. You were really better off letting nature take its own course. So Margagne began this process in his 20s as a young doctor in Northern Italy. And he realized, I'm gonna take everyone's hospital course or their health course, and we're gonna analyze how they do. And if they die, I will do an autopsy. I'll cut them open and try and investigate how they died. And so he's the guy that really put together, let's see, lower abdominal pain for a few days before you die. He found the swollen appendix. And someone that had this crushing chest pain and then collapsed, it was Morgagne who opened up a man's heart, looked at the coronary vessels and saw that it was clogged and realized, I think these coronary blood vessels are what caused this man to die. And he was the first person to realize what a heart attack was. And it goes on and on. And Morgagne amazingly collected all this data over 60 years. He waited until he was in his 80s to publish his book. He's the one that that really shone the light upon mankind, humankind, that symptoms are nothing more than the groanings of suffering organs. And in connecting the dots and realizing if you have abdominal pain, it's not that the planets are off or that there's evil spirits in the room. It's that something is going on right then and there. There seems to be less time in between discoveries as we go forward. How do you account for that acceleration? Well, the rapidity with which the progress is made now is stunning. And it's almost like this doubling rule that we see with microchips. The faster the advancements come, the faster the next uh, breakthrough occurs. 
And, and I think we're just going to continue to see this. And of course, the most recent vaccination progress is just an incredible example of how the speed of science just continues to accelerate. Do you think that the history of medicine helps to explain why we were able to develop a vaccine so quickly? I think it does. Uh, of course, the history of medicine, the advancement of surgery, is, is really all about science. It's this discovery. You have to understand first how things are working. Then you have to think about how things go wrong. And then you have to really try and innovate a clever way of getting around it. And revolutions happen through the combination of some crisis or catastrophe combined with some scientific invention. And of course, that's what's happened. Vaccines have been around for, you know, since the time of Jenner, but it really wasn't until the last 15 years that Carrico and Wiseman had this incredible idea that this workaround to try and make an mRNA vaccine work better. And, and as is typical, Catlin Carrico at Penn, together with her colleague Wiseman, had this idea that was very much unheralded at first. She was laughed out of the university. But her idea, of course, is what's changing the world. It's this ability to think out of the box, to be different, to break away from the crowd. That's where innovation happens. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Schneider. Thank you, Avery. Dr. David Schneider from Boulder is the author of The Invention of Surgery, A History of Modern Medicine from the Renaissance to the Implant Revolution. We spoke in January. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.